This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 33. This is Writing Excuses. Tell, don't show. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're going to tell you stuff. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm not going to show you that I'm Howard. Well, fine then. Uh, as we start Thank off goodness. this, I want to actually talk about where the advice uh, tell do- or show don't tell comes from. Um, this actually comes from silent films. <laughs> So <laughs> this is important to understand. Slightly outmoded art form. <laughs> As a writer, um, what, what this advice originated from is, you know, what the reader wants to see is characters doing stuff and action happening. What they don't want is to have to read a bunch of title cards. So if you can give us information embedded in the scene, that is significantly better than having a title card or having a whole bunch of things at the beginning that your character has, your reader has to wade through before they get to the meat of the thing. So that's where show don't tell comes from. But in fact, we are storytellers. <laughs> so uh, a certain amount of telling is kind of baked into our process. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I always say about it is that a novel is mostly the writer just telling you stuff because there's too much thing stuff. There's too many things that happen in a novel for you to show every single component of it. Right. And so I think show don't tell is really useful advice, but for a one one level writer, for an introductory writer, when you're just getting started, you need to learn how to make sure that things are seen on the page that reinforce the stuff that you're telling us. But the reality is it's a balance. There's a lot of telling and there's a lot of showing. And I think when you're in the opening pages of a book, there's so much information that I, as the reader, need to understand anything. And this kind of goes back to our starting with dialogue thing, that if you tell me some stuff first, then I have the context to engage with the dialogue that you're putting on the page. So I think there are ways in which you can tell us a lot of information. Think about Hill House. That whole first paragraph is just Shirley Jackson telling us about this house. And I think that informs everything that's going to come after that. Yeah, and this is uh, this has been true for, for all of the things that we're doing. But frequently what they're doing, you know, is, is that everything is doing double duty. It is it is both just flat up telling you, you know, I, I was arrested. It's like, they, they, that's just flat up telling you, I was arrested. He then proceeds to, to, to show the arrest, yes. But, uh, but he's not playing coy with the information. It's like, this is the important thing, the thing that I want you to understand. And a lot of times I think that we internalize this show don't tell so thoroughly that a, a writer feels like if they uh, they just come out and tell the reader something, that uh, that they have in some way diminished uh, the the surprise, that the anticipation of, of whatever it is. Um, using yeah. using my my own novel as an example, the opening of Calculating Stars is: Do you remember where you were when the meteor hit? I'm I'm like flat out telling you a meteor is going to hit. A meteorite is going to hit. Uh, before we get into to the rest of of what's going on, so it's it's totally okay to just 
just tell people things. He said, she said, that's just telling people stuff. The yeah. best example I've found for in support of show don't tell in novel form um, was a draft I read uh, in which a conversation, a big detailed conversation between two characters, we are told the summary of the conversation and it is bookended by very specific dialogue, meaningless dialogue from the pilot about bringing the spaceship into dock. And I remember reading that and thinking, you showed me the completely uninteresting bits and you told me what happened in the part that I wanted to see. And so that felt upside down. Um, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, we are tellers. Yeah. And we have to, we tell a lot. So I, I like to use different words for these. Uh, telling and showing, um, because we are primarily a non-visual medium, don't have as much meaning as they would in, for example, silent film. So I like to talk about instead describing and demonstrating. And like Dong Wan said, there's a big balance between them, that you need to do both of them. Some things need to be described and some things need to be demonstrated on the page so that we can see them in action and understand why we should care about them. But using how to use those two tools is really valuable. So I, I also use different words when I'm talking about it, um, because for me, the decision about showing or telling is about controlling um, controlling two specific things, uh, the pacing and my emotional distance from the character. So the, the more I unpack something and take time with it and, and dwell on it, the kind of closer I am to the character's head. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that my sentences have to get long. Like in, in the Tom Reacher, you know, that's, we, we are very deeply in the character's head, but everything's short and punchy. Um, so for me, it's, it's, uh, it's about immediacy versus, uh, distance from the, the character or, um, unpacking or compressing something. You know, if, if time passes frequently, I'm just going to tell you a lot of time passed. I'm not going to make you like live through that. I, I think also one block that people have is they think right here, this paragraph, I'm telling somebody something, this next scene I'm showing, then I'm going to tell, then I'm going to mm. show and I think that is, I think the, the Dan's language really helps disrupt that because what you're really doing is sliding from showing and telling sentence to sentence, even like clause to clause in a sentence. And, you know, when you have dialogue, you know, Howard kind of hinted at this a little bit, but you can have one person say something and then tell us, and they said that their day was great. You know what I mean? Like, and, or tell, and then, you know, she told me about her day and her morning and, you know, some interesting stuff happened, but honestly it was boring. Right. Like you can skip over the boring parts of it, but then show us the interactions that matter. Right. So think of these as tools to be used in a very interwoven, very integrated way. Not one big block of that and then one big block of that. It's also useful to think about this uh, kind of the way the MPAA handles content ratings. Um, if you show the splash of blood and gibbets and gore, you've got an R rating. If you show the moment leading up to that, and then the camera pulls away and someone talks about what happened, you have a different rating. 
And the viewer has a different experience. And so you, as the writer, by controlling the position of the camera, can do some things with content that might otherwise be extremely triggery, extremely graphic, whatever, um, and handle it in a different way because, well, you know, it's your book. You show us what you want to show us and tell us the parts that you don't want us to stare at. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So with that, uh, may we tell you about our book of the week. And that is uh, my opportunity this week to talk about Jade City by Fonda Lee. Uh, This is the first in a series, a fantasy series, that I didn't quite know what to expect going into it. It is uh, kind of an epic fantasy about two crime families, basically, in an Asian-inspired fantasy world. But in it's a modern version of that. It, it is uh, it's set in like a, a modern day style city. The very first paragraph has ceiling fans that took took me completely by surprise because I was expecting something more traditional fantasy. Uh, the language in the book is incredible. The characters are enormously compelling. Uh, the setting is really well drawn and fascinating. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful, and there's a whole series attached to it. So please go read Jade City by Fonda Lee. I'm going to second that because I blurbed it, and I think I described it as uh, the Godfather meets Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because it's uh, it's all of those things plus um, it, it plus all of the stuff that you love from martial arts wireworks as a magic system. It's so good. Fonda herself talks about that book as the godfather with Kung Fu, right? Oh, yeah. That's that's absolutely the framing of it. I will also point out that Jade Legacy, book three in the series, is out this November, and I cannot wait. Oh. <laughs> well, and let, let me use this as an example of what we're talking about with Tell, Don't Show, because it is entirely about kind of two warring crime families. There's no peak and there's mountain, and they're fighting for control over the city. And in order to understand that battle, we need to understand how the city functions and how the magic works and all of that. And so it begins with what I suppose is technically a prologue, but feels just like chapter one of two thieves who are trying to steal a bunch of Jade from a kind of a low level criminal. And because they are outside of the system, we're not getting all of the high level ramifications of what's going on. We're getting the very low level, Jade is important. This is why. This is what it can do. This is why we want it. And so it's 
just really kind of telling us, it's describing to us what is important and why. And then it is demonstrating to us what the magic can do and what it is like to live in the city all at the same time. It's a brilliant opening. Yeah, I mean, she tells us that jade is important, that the clans are important, how the jade magic works and you know how the culture in the city works. She's telling us all those things and then immediately reinforces it by showing us the moment of these two petty criminals walking to this restaurant to try and rip off this like mid-level boss and just everything is a disaster as you can expect in a totally delightful, like very Breaking Bad style way of like all these dominoes falling. But it's such an opportunity to set up the thing by telling you, reinforce it by showing you and then telling you the next thing when you see the consequences of the first thing happening, right? This is a try-fail cycle used to demonstrate world building and it's a masterclass in my opinion. The other thing I wanted, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, we should probably talk about other things besides the book, even though I would, I I was, because I was just about to say, and also. um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then I got to tell you this part. Forever about this book. Um, The the other thing I want to talk about, though, is I, I think it's so interesting that Mary Robinette pointed out that the origins of Show Don't Tell are rooted in uh, silent film, because I think the way in which the amount of visual media that we all consume today, I think has made show don't tell really run off the rails in terms of writing fiction, which is a non-visual medium, right? As Dan said. And the problem with show and tell is we think of it as here's a scene of two characters talking and then here's voiceover. And that's the telling we think of telling as the artificial voiceover And in film, that's often a cheap trick. In film, that is a shortcut to giving us information for a variety of reasons. So what we instead need to remember is that when we are looking at a visual image, we are absorbing enormous amounts of information that aren't on the page. We can see the characters faces. We can see their expressions. We can see what they're wearing. We can see the furniture behind them, right? You don't need to describe that as a ceiling fan. You know, if I just saw the opening shot of a of, of movie version of Jade City, I would know, yeah, this is the 1970s. Yeah, there's technology. Yeah, there's cars, right? I don't need to be told those things. So the thing to remember is that when you're writing a book, the, the reader will only see what you put a laser focus on. And the mechanic by which you often put that laser focus on the, the, the stage setting is through telling us stuff. The example that I use when I am attempting to explain this, uh, to tell people about this, um, is, is that a lot of what we're talking about here is the order of information. Um, that the order of information that you're presenting to people on that first page is incredibly important because you're setting up context. And so what I, I use is the example of imagine that you're in a dark theater with this laser focus uh, and that you have a single spotlight and the single spotlight rests, opens up on a, a pool of red liquid on a linoleum floor. And you think, oh, someone's been stabbed. There's, there's blood on the floor. And then it pans over and you see a can of Kool-Aid and you're like, oh, okay, no, 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 no. I was, I was wrong. I misunderstood what was going on. Uh, this is a kitchen drama and someone has just dropped a can of Kool-Aid and that's what the red liquid is. And you pan a little bit farther and now you see uh, a hand and a bloody knife. And you're like, oh, no, I was right the first time someone was stabbed. But if you do it the other way around, if you provide context for your reader, if you start with the hand on the, on the floor with the knife and then you go to 
the can of Kool-Aid and then you go to the red liquid, the reader can build this, this very clear picture in their head. So when you're deciding at the beginning kind of what to tell, um, you're, you're not just deciding what to tell, but you're also deciding when to tell it. You're trying to make sure that you're presenting this information in a way that the reader is building that the picture that you want them to build in their head because storytelling is linear whereas film even though we are experiencing time passing you don't have control you have you have some control over where, where an audience looks on a screen but like if if i am watching something and there is a typewriter in a scene that is always the first thing i will look at and the filmmaker has absolutely no control over that um, but on a page that you do have that control. Howard, it looks like you had a thing. I, I did. Um, a short paragraph of character description from a work in progress, which I, I talked about metaphor and, uh, and simile and, and whatnot uh, in an earlier episode, you know, how uh, Lee Childs didn't use it um, in the, the Jack Reacher thing. Uh, metaphors and comparisons are a form of telling, you know, a form of description um, that, that give us a shortcut. This is short. Darren laughs. It's a big, friendly, old man sort of belly laugh. Not quite ho, 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 but if Darren ever decided to grow a beard to go with his massive handlebar mustache, he'd have steady holiday work as a shopping mall Santa. How much of that is actual description? How much of that is comparison to a picture you already have in your head? And I'm telling you to make a connection between these two things. That is something that absolutely, you know, the a movie can't do that without one of the characters saying, your laugh sounds like Santa Claus. Have you looked at which would derail the film? Well, and to keep this... Uh you know, my own little terminology going, that paragraph you read us is telling us how to think about this person. It's describing the person, but at the same time, it is demonstrating the characterization of the speaker. We're, we're learning so much about the person who is giving us that information because of the way they choose to give it. So with that in mind, I think let's talk about your homework for this week. So, your homework for this week is, again, maybe taking that scene or taking another opening scene. And what I want you to do is to rewrite the whole first scene purely as narration, right? Take out any dialogue, take out any of that scene setting, and just give it to us as a narrator describing what's happening. Now, I'm not recommending this be the final version of your opening. I think this is a really instructive exercise, though, to show you what does and doesn't work about this approach. And I, hopefully from this, you can take sentences, you can take paragraphs, and then work that into your draft. But I, I want you to really step back and force yourself to get rid of all the tools of showing and only do a telling version of it and see where that gets you. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dong Wan Song, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. The episode was brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash writing excuses. 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.